0: Do you suffer from tilt? Has the relentless grind of getting rivered by the terrible plays of donkeys beaten you down? Do you suffer from SS, also known as short stack syndrome? Despite what they say, size does matter and you know it. That's why you need to ask your doctor about TBS-TV, a new weekly dose of poker inoculation. TBS-TV, or The Blind Stealing the Blinds, is a weekly podcast to help you bridge the gap between poker theory and application and apply some lessons on the felt to your life off the felt. Common side effects include increased confidence, better range construction, higher win rates, and in general, being a better human being. For a free consultation, head over to tbstv.com. Your poker life depends on it.
1: You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, a conversation on equity, value, and bluffing.
0: We're joined this week again with Jordan Sweet from School of Cards. We gave him an introduction a couple episodes ago, so we will just get right to it. What precipitated this podcast is that Jordan and I were having a conversation on Slack about what it means to deny equity, realize equity, and how that relates to value betting and bluffing. And there's a lot to unpack in that conversation. So we decided, why not just do a podcast about it? Welcome back to the show, Jordan. Good to have you.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you to you and Dell. I know Dell is out, but thank you for the, the time either way.
0: Absolutely. I'm not sure we're going to do a game this time. Dell absolutely hated the one sound word game, and he messaged me. He was like, please, God, don't ever do that. Stop. Just stop. So I'm like, okay. Well, you know what? He's not here, so we could do whatever we want, man. But I think you had a different idea.
1: I think we should do alphabet tips at the end. We're going to do...
0: Alphabet tips. tips.
1: We're going to share poker tips, and... The tip has to start with the next letter of the alphabet.
0: Excellent. Hey, listeners, you are going to get 26 excellent tips. So we'll do that at the end. But right now, we want to talk about the role equity plays and how that goes into value and bluffing. And I guess for me, the problem statement really is, and we'll probably get into definitions of what these terms mean, but without a firm understanding of the role equity plays, we won't really be able to construct coherent lines for either value or bluffing to help us realize our equity or deny our opponents theirs. And I know in previous podcasts, we've mentioned maximizing EV as the root cause of pretty much all your decisions in poker. You want to make the most money possible. You want to maximize your EV. And that doesn't always necessarily mean maximizing your equity or overrealizing realizing your equity. And this gets to the problem I had like two years ago where I thought the only way I could win a hand was to like Hulk smash my opponents into submission. I got a value hand. I bet 100%. Bet 100. Bet 100. Bet 100. And it always worked until it didn't. And the reason it worked so often was because people don't know how to play against aggression. But when I ran into a monster, I got my butt handed to me. So I had to learn to slow down. All right. So that's pretty much, I think, what the problem statement is. Would you agree with that? Is that a good launching point?
1: Yes. So as you mentioned, you would say that your goal is to maximize your EV and to make the best EV decisions. That is not the same as over-realizing your equity because you could have the same amount of equity in a smaller pot and you're going to win less money overall. So EV actually comes out to a number. If your equity is 50% of a $100 pot, your expected value of checking on the river uh, or whatever is is going to be 50% of 100. Right, so the equation works out to the expected value of a decision is the dollar amount after the hand plays out. And then your equity plays a role as an input into that function. So you could over-realize an equity share of a very small pot and your output dollar amount there is going to be smaller than maybe under-realizing equity of a much larger pot.
0: Yeah, I played Sunday. I had pocket aces in the big blind. Everybody folded. The small blind did not want to play, wanted to chop. I won nothing. I overrealized the equity of my aces, because I had eighty-two percent equity if it were a heads up, but I ended up winning one hundred percent of my blind back to me. That kind of sucked.
1: Right. So we also talked about that aces example. That's a great one, going multiway. And when you have aces multiway, you will win less often but you'll win less often a much larger pot. So you still will end up winning more money uh, at the end because uh, what is it, 40 or 60% of, you know, 400 is still much more than uh, 80% of only 100, right? Yeah. The the ACES example is great, but it's also an extreme one because ACES is the only pocket pair that is also top pair. Once you start plugging in... uh, kings queens jacks into that somewhat fake scenario you do start to see that as you go multi-way your equity drops because you you got the chance of someone hitting an ace on the board so like when you have aces an opponent cannot pair only one card in their hand and still win but once you have kings or queens or jacks an opponent holding ace x or king something or queen something can just hit some random top pair on the turn of the river so you do end up losing the scenario still works out multiway builds a bigger pot, and as long as you're still winning a good share of that bigger pot, like you're gonna win more money in the long run. And as a, a fake kind of example just to prove a point, like it still works out. But it, it is just interesting how extreme ACEs is as an example in that scenario.
0: Well here's another example using aces. And I think this gets to how people are so risk averse and they're not willing to go multiray, understanding they might win more money, but they would be less likely to win overall. The whole limp re-raise with aces. They're under the gun, they limp, middle position raises, get a couple collars, maybe, maybe someone squeezes, and then the jam. And you know it's aces. And almost invariably, they were very happily turn over pocket aces, as if to show you, neater neater, look how well I played this. Aren't I a Maven? I just owned you all with aces. They essentially denied me my equity. But they also won the minimum. So I'm happy about it. I love it. I lost the minimum amount of money possible. I could have lost a lot more had they seen Future Streets, and I probably would have happily gone along with them. Let's say I have, like, you know, King 10 or whatever, and the flop is Ace King 10. I got two pair, looking pretty good. They flop top set. They're probably going to own me, but they don't. They overrealize their equity. They, I don't know if this is a term, they overdeny. My equity? They don't even give me a chance, and I think that gets to the whole risk aversion that people don't want to play because they're afraid of losing, even though they could win more. I mean, am I off base
1: there? Do you see that too? As I see it, equity denial starts from the beginning of the hand, and and that is what they're doing is they're trying to deny the suckout. Uh, as far as the terms go, I think it, it'd be good to define, for the sake of this conversation, what we're talking about, because you you still can have people disagree and. Poker, I think, is a game that should be interpreted through your own lens, so people can have different definitions and that's fine. For the sake of this discussion, I will say that equity denial is, (laughs) for for the sake of using a word, a, a definition in a definition, Right, you're denying someone else's chance to realize their equity, which basically means you are folding out hands that have a decent equity share against yours. So the difference between my definition and others is that you will find training sites that say equity denial is when you have a better hand and you get a worse hand to fold, but a worse hand that has a decent amount of equity against yours. They will then say bluffing is when you have a worse hand and you get a better hand to fold. I have two problems with that. The first being that we don't ever know exactly what our opponent has. When we want to play next level, we want to think in terms of ranges. So I want to think at any point in time, an opponent could have the nuts. They could have a better hand. It might be just one small portion of the range. If my opponent's range consists of a bunch of hands that have a really good chance of beating me, then I might want to take a line that denies that chance. And that gets to the heart of some issues that that you touched on is being scared of the suck out. In thinking in terms of ranges, if we don't know exactly what our opponent has, but we know that they have one of these hands in the range, we can't ever know if we have a worse hand and we need them to fold their better hand. In terms of bluffing, a bluff and equity denial can be similar in the fact that we want an opponent to fold. In the definition that I've given, if we're just looking to get our opponent to fold, aren't we just always bluffing? But I would say uh, that equity denial starts pre-flop, it travels through the hand, flop and turn, and then at the river is when you need to make a decision if you need to bluff an opponent or you're betting for value. So I like to use extreme examples when I talk in terms of poker, I like to think of the game on a spectrum, but the extreme examples help me then figure out which side of that spectrum I'm on. In the most extreme example, you might hold deuce three and have the like, have absolute nothing. You have no pair. You just have the worst two cards. You know that you need to bluff in order to win the hand, unless your opponent has deuce three on the same run out and you're going to chop. But assuming no pair, you have deuce three, you need to get your opponent to fold in order to win. On the other hand, let's say you have pocket aces and you have a full house, aces full of kings or whatever. You, you know you have the nuts by the river. Maybe um, you have top, the, the best straight or nut flush or whatever. You're going to be betting for value. So then at some point, you may have a hand that's second nuts, third nuts, whatever, not the best. You know that you're going to be betting generally for value. You don't hit the river with third nuts and then say, like, I'm, I don't want to bet because my opponent might have the nuts. Some players might do that, but like, generally, you kind of know on the spectrum where you're at.
0: Okay, so those definitions make a lot of sense to me, and I wish I had known about those two or three years ago, when all I could do was beat my opponents into submission with hyper-aggression. Which, by the way, is what I still do when I'm not thinking. If I'm super tired or distracted or frustrated or tilted, whatever, I default to hyper-aggressive behavior, which is weird because the average poker player struggles with any sort of aggression. Meanwhile, I like top-out max aggression if I'm not thinking how do you know when to switch gears from equity realization of your own range to wanting to slow down, pump the brakes, and deny the equity of your opponent's range? What are the factors that go into that consideration?
1: That's an interesting question because to me, they are not related so easily. Shifting between those two doesn't mean you're pumping the brakes. In order to realize you might want to pump the brakes because you might decide that your opponent's range, you may be fall somewhere in the middle of that and they have a decent number of hands that are ahead of yours and they have a decent number of hands that you are ahead of, but they still have a decent amount of equity like heading into the river. So in order for you to realize the max amount that you can, you may have to check because as you've already stated, if you bet, you're going to get called by a lot of these better hands and then you end up in the spot where like, oh, your aggression didn't work. And if you bet and they fold out those worse hands, nothing really changes. You were usually going to beat those other hands anyway. So you could have a situation where betting does really nothing for you except fold out hands that are that are really, really bad that your opponent would, would never be betting with anyway or never be calling with, and they have a very slim chance of winning, but the hands that they do call you with are ones that are either already ahead or they have a, a great chance of winning. So maybe like top pair with a flush draw might already be ahead of your middle pair, or they have two overs with a flush draw, which is like splitting the pot with you generally anyway. So for you to realize the maximum equity of your like, middle pair or your top pair against that whole range, you may decide, okay, now I need to pump the brakes. The difference there to me is understanding the terms and using the definition as, as I prefer to use it helps me just kind of figure out what the specific hand I have wants to do on that runout.
0: One of the biggest pitfalls I ran into is that my bet 100 strategy only served to funnel myself into the trap of my own design. I fold out the worst hands that I beat. I entice hands that beat me to stay in. And by the river, I'm pretty much betting into their topside equity and I'm owning myself.
1: Right. So if we think in terms of levels, you might start at the at the lowest level of poker is just knowing what hand you have and knowing whether it's good or not. And then you've got the next level of making maybe a good guess at what your opponent has and then making a decision in the moment based on how good you know your hand is and guessing maybe what your opponent's hand is. As we get to where you and your listeners are and want to be, you know that you may have a certain range of hands at any point. You have a range that you raise pre-flop or three-bet pre-flop, and then they hit a certain flop, and then you have to decide what to do with the range that you have and the specific hand that you have. You don't want to be transparent, so you don't want to make deviations that are so wild that your opponent's going to be able to pick up on it. So you maybe want a size fairly similar with a certain subset, you may wanna raise with a certain subset. You may wanna be raising with some super strong hands and some what we would call bluffs, right? (laughs) That are gonna try and deny equity. In thinking in in the terms of those definitions, what it helps me do is figure out what the hand that I'm holding wants to do. Because it's super hard, first of all, to memorize your entire range and then what you wanna do, let alone memorize all the different flops you might might encounter, and then all the different opponents you might encounter. You end up with these million scenarios It's usually much easier to just know why you need to do something and then piece those that puzzle together like on the table. As long as you know the tools and you know the reasons and you know how pieces should fit, you can always solve the puzzle kind of in real time. And that's what makes people dangerous because you're hard to figure out. If if you don't even know what you're going to do, how does anyone else know, right? But you're able to piece that puzzle together in real time because you know what a good piece should look like. And then you know how it'll fit into the, you know, connect to the piece that your opponent put in based on their actions. So when I think in terms of the range that I know I have pre-flop and how it connects to a certain flop, I might understand that in this situation, I need to deny a bunch of equity from my opponent's entire range versus my opponent might have a range of like really weak hands. And I don't really need to deny anything because I have a super strong hand. That will affect then my sizing maybe or my decision to, to check to let them catch up. I know you, you've mentioned that when you flop top set, right, you, you tend to not really want to bet because what can your opponent call you with? That's all the part of putting together the puzzle pieces. If you, if you hold the top set, there's not a lot of top pairs left, right? So you need to bet a sizing that second pair is going to call or you need to check in and, like, and let them catch up. So doing all that reverse engineering on the table is kind of difficult. When you think in terms of the equity, it's a little bit easier to piece that puzzle together.
0: You had mentioned, and I'm using air quotes here, you can't see it on the audio podcast, what we would call bluffs. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I have bins that I put my range into. Some might call them buckets. Dell calls them sieves because they have a lot of holes in them. So I know on certain flop textures, if they, if I have range advantage, if my opponent has range advantage, if we're kind of evenly balanced, if it's kind of a mix between the two, I have. Parts of my range that are check call, check raise, c-bet, check fold, and I have heuristics. Like you were mentioning, kind of like the recipe for puzzle. If I have middle set or bottom set, I might check raise. I will also do that with bluffs, or to use those scare quotes, what we might call bluffs. So for every bucket I have, I have a mixture of value hands and what we would call bluffs. Are those really bluffs? Because what I would contend is a semi-bluff isn't necessarily a semi-bluff. I'm betting, I'm taking an action to push the equity of my range through to future streets. So I'm not doing it necessarily to deny equity. I might actually, as I think about it, I might. But anyway, I'm doing it for a reason other than what I would consider bluffing. You know, I'm trying to put these weaker holdings of my range into these CBET or check raise buckets. To help me realize my equity or to help me deny them theirs, but it's not straight fat value.
1: So, to get super wordy, we could call those potential high equity holdings. If you have a combo draw, maybe straight flush draw or like two overs, nut flush draw, you potentially have a very high equity holding. You're drawing to the nuts. A lot of yeah. these terms, in my mind, in my experience from how I understand, it, these terms come from the, the old school value oriented way of playing poker. We call it a semi bluff because it has some value, but we're not there yet. In reality, what it is, it's a potential high equity hand. You're going to hit a flush, you're going to hit top hair, you're going to have some high equity. You want to build a pot that you're going to be able to win a lot of money from. If your equity share the whole way through is 50%, what does it matter if you win 50% of a $10 pot or 50% of a $1,000 pot? Obviously, the difference is a lot of money, but if you were playing long-term and you're thinking in terms of, of the equity and making, and making plus EV decisions, as we went over before, the EV is your, your number output. So 50% of a thousand dollar pot, that's $500. That's a lot more expected value than 50% of a $10 pot. So when you take the, the check, check, check route, wait till I hit my hand and then bet, you're potentially winning a much smaller pot So potentially actually making a a worse EV decision than if you go hyper aggro like you would in the past and go bet, 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 build a huge bot. Then the problem then becomes instead of uh, thinking what hand do I have and what hand might I have and what hand does I point at, the problem then is am I actually at 50% or have my opponents adjusted to be only calling me down with value? And that's where we get into the lines that you've constructed that contain some hands that your opponents will know may not be super strong. So these... um, these uh, semi bluffs, who are potential high equity holdings, they will be semi bluffs because they should have some equity. And the difference between that and then what what we would call maybe just a super airball is that the airball has no hope of winning. When you have deuce three of spades on like a, a nine nine four diamond diamond heart board, you got nothing. So you need to bluff. You maybe at that point is where we're not even talking equity denial. We're just talking straight bluff from the beginning because you're denying your opponent's equity in the sense that you want to bet so they fold but if your goal is to make your opponent fold the entirety of their range then that is when you are just straight up bluffing that's kind of difficult to do in uh, in today's game because people are a little bit more well aware of the value of a pair you know the saying like a pair is hard to make and i think a lot of people kind of understand that now you can start from the flop with a um, a super super weak hand and know from the beginning that the only way i'm going to win this pot is to just bet until my opponent folds. That is a, a, a difficult strategy to balance in the sense of how many runouts you might encounter.
0: I think it's really interesting that your bluffing really only happens after the river card is exposed. We're no longer denying equity in the sense that we're trying to fold out the entirety of their range. And I have pulled out bluffs. I have pulled out triple barrel bluffs, not because of anything of board texture or my holdings, it's because of player profiles and tendencies. Like I've noticed certain players, they will bet a certain way and they never have aces. They never have an ace here. The turn comes, it's a brick. The river comes, it's an ace. And I know 100% that they are scared to death of that ace. So I bet and they fold, they snap fold. And that has nothing to do with the raw equity of my holding. Yeah, I overrealized the equity of my hand because my hand was complete trash but I maximize my EV, not from the actual holding of my cards, but that was because of my ability to pay attention to player profiles and behavior. I guess that's what the difference is between bluffing, trying to fold out 100% of the range, and these potentially high equity holdings. If I got your term right, right? Potentially high equity holdings, is that it?
1: Yes. What well, we would call semi-buffs. Okay. Potential high equity holdings. Got it. So 50% is an easy number to work with because we can think in terms of just halves. I win sure. or lose. So 50% makes it easy for us to say I win or lose because it's half the time. Let's say you have a hand combo that has maybe 33% equity. Okay. There is a bet size that is equivalent to that 33% of what could be the pot by the river. And if you win 33% of the time and the amount of money that you need to commit in order to win the pot that's currently available, you are essentially breaking even in terms of the equity that your hand has and the risk that you need for that potential reward. So 50% is a great example and it's just easy to work with. But I was going to say, if we have a a hand that is going to win 48% of the time, like a a 14 out, 12 out draw, like a a combo draw, but you could choose maybe like a pair plus gut shot or, or pair plus open ended draw, as long as your sizing is married with that. If you are going to bet that potential high equity holding down to the river, and sometimes you're going to hit the hand, sometimes you're not, but if your opponent is going to fold more than they should, then your profit is going to come from that difference. So just to go back to the easy 50% example, if you have the $100 pot and by the end of it, you're going to hit your flush or you're not, but your opponent's going to fold out a lot more hands than they should. They're going to fold out maybe like 70% of the range. Then you're going to win more than the $50 because by the turn, you're going to win a lot more you don't even have to see the river to see if you get there. So your strategy of being super aggressive will work against the right opponent. The times you were getting caught is probably when you're up against an opponent whose range is so strong to begin with, they're either so nitty to begin with, that when they hit the flop, they just don't have enough hands to hold. So what you have to do then against that player is you then have to adjust the puzzle based on the pieces that they're adding and say, maybe I have to wait till I hit my hand and then put the bet in. Their range is so strong anyway that they can't fold to a half pot bet by the river. As those puzzle pieces start to come together, you can make those adjustments on the fly. Uh, instead of just autopiloting your like pre-studied lines or your um, predetermined lines based on what you're, you studied at, at home or off-table, you can make those adjustments because you understand what your hand wants to do relative to what your opponent's equity
0: Yeah. Uh, we covered the concept of minimum defense frequency. That's really where I made the Stone Cold Bluff against my opponent because I knew they would fold way more often when that scary ace came in the river I knew they would overfold and I would auto profit because really they should have, based on my bet size, they should have folded like one third of the time, but I knew they were folding like almost 100% of the time. So I could just auto profit there. But yeah, that point is, is well taken. There are a lot of resources on the internet where you can study break even percentages and minimum defense frequencies, and the math really isn't hard. I mean, some people get freaked out by the math. It's not like quantum mechanics or, or calculus. You're not doing differential equations. You're doing addition and division and multiplication and stuff. And there are spreadsheets that you can just plug these into and it spits out the number so you know like, hey, here's my risk plus reward divided by my risk. There you go. I got like a 33% even point. It's The math isn't hard. So if people are freaked out by the math, just try it. It's There are so many resources on YouTube and poker forums and free resources like spreadsheets and stuff. It's You need to know the math. You don't need to be a beautiful mind like Nash, but you need to have basic math skills.
1: Isn't that part of the challenge to be able to do the math, even when you have a big thousand dollar pot in front of you? Do you ever find that when you're facing the seven hundred dollar bet, you have to slow down? Sometimes I'm facing the bet and I just I catch myself literally counting chips in the pot. And then I have these moments where I like I wake up and I'm like, I know what's in there. I already know what the bet was pre I know the bet was up pop, I know what's in there. But it, I start counting the chips because that's what I can control. I know that I can count things and get the right answer because I'm avoiding doing what I know how to do. And that's working through the math problem that's in front of me. But it's so crazy sometimes that's, that might be just what separates the great players from us is they don't care that it's $100,000 in front of them. It's just chips.
0: No, I, I completely feel for you. I completely can empathize with that. I took a stab at 510 three months ago just because my bankroll was there. I I didn't yet buy another investment property, so I kind of had the money. I took a stab at 510 and I played in the largest pot I had ever played to date. The math was crazy simple. The math required that I go all in because I had a potential high equity draw and I had to go all in, but it was for the most money I had ever bet in my life. And even though the decision was rock solid, the fact that there were so many zeros on the end of that number freaked me out. It took me a hot minute to figure out, wait, hold on. The quality of the decision to jam on this spot is the same as the quality of the decision. Were I at one three or two five for one tenth of the pot? It doesn't matter. The decision is just as valid. Pull the trigger. Boom. Go for it. And it ended up winning. So that was fantastic. I love that. But yeah, I mean, there is, I sweated for a bit. I definitely sweat for a bit. But the fact that I was able to take a step back and like ground myself in the reality of the quality of the decision and not the result, that result had a lot of zeros and that kind of scared me. And if I lost, that was my entire bankroll. And I would have to go home to my wife and my son and tell them I lost all this money. And my son would say, dad, I hate you. And my wife would divorce me. And you know, you catastrophize. Yeah, you catastrophize like that, you know?
1: No more video games for Christmas. Can afford no.
0: it. <laughs> no, no, here's, here's a can of corned beef. Enjoy. No, but you're right. And I think that gets to what we were talking about earlier is the risk aversion of the suckout. The risk aversion becomes even greater when the pot size increases, despite the fact that the math remains exactly the same.
1: So I have some examples, if you'd like to go into some examples and talk. Yeah, let's go things. ahead. A little bit more practically about how this might apply to uh, some post flop decisions. So let's say you have Queen Jack. I assume you you like to open Queen Jack, maybe you cut off. I do. Let's make it suited. I do. And it looks pretty. Okay. So let's think of a flop that's the uh, quintessential C bet flop.
0: Like I don't know, Queen Jack Deuce. I got two pair.
1: Now Queen I Jack, super easy. Two pair, I slam dunk. So I was thinking more of like King Seven Deuce. Oh quick, well. Some, like okay, no one hit anything. No one has seven deuces. Who's who's calling okay. a king seven, right? Okay, okay. No, I just meant a quintessential flop that that you should recognize as something where you would want to see bet because if the flop is good for your range, so queen jack to me on a king high board with no pair is just a great example of equity denial at play. If your opponent has a lot of ace x in their range, you really do need to fold out ace high because if you get to the river with no pair, you're going to show down an embarrassing queen high and lose to an embarrassing no pair and you get your opponent gets to say not no pair and you have to go oh that's good my bad I should have bet somewhere (laughs) but when they fold out a pocket pair we also win coincidentally the board presents a challenge for pocket pairs to call so we can leverage that board texture to fold out hands that already have a decent amount of equity while simultaneously denying equity to hands that are that are already ahead of us that they may not even know are ahead of us that can easily fold to a bet.
0: I think one of the cool things to that is that we're almost stealing equity away from our opponent. When we have a decent holding and we're presented as the pre-flop aggressor with a board that favors our range, we can represent a lot so that our strong hands make money because our strong hands can realize their equity. But the weaker part of our ranges can also steal equity from our opponents by what you just said. We can fold out the small pocket pairs we might fold out ace high, which kind of goes contrary to the other poker schools that say equity and denial is when you have a better hand and fold out worse ones. But we're actually folding out a better hand when we get aces to fold. And we need them to fold. By getting aces to fold, by getting pocket fives to fold, we are stealing the equity for ourselves. That's pretty cool.
1: And when you say ace and ace high, not to be confused. Yeah,
0: not, not pocket aces. I don't think pocket aces is going to fold on a king 7-3 board. But yeah, ace high, you know, the nut no pair.
1: I think that other definition does come from the fear of the suckout, where we have a good hand, we need the potential suckout to fold. But in reality, it's just we have a pot in front of us and we just need other hands to fold that are going to win by the river if neither one of us hurts. And those hands don't have a hard time folding at all because they also have no care. Along the spectrum, we're kind of in the middle in that sense. Sometimes we know exactly where we're at. We flop the nuts or we flop a, a super strong hand or we flop absolutely nothing. And it's easy to play on the spectrum. A lot of players are just trading blinds and bets along the ends of the spectrum. But so when we get in the middle, that people start making mistakes, that's where you want to capitalize and capture a lot of that problem. All
0: right. I can't think of anything else to add to this topic for now. I'm thinking it's probably time for us to get to the 26 alphabetical poker tips. What do you think?
1: I think that's a what great you- I can get us started if you'd like an example. Go for it. I will say a great tip for playing poker is Aggression will really help lower limit players increase their profitability.
0: Bluffing requires you to have a consistent and coherent story. You can't really bluff if the story of the hand doesn't make sense because they might find you out, look you up and you got nut, no pair and you're gonna lose the hand.
1: That was very elaborate. I will just say simply check raising looks super strong and people will think you're a maniac.
0: Donk batting is often a sign of weakness. If you see someone donk batting, and you raise them, you will likely take the pot down. It really depends on the flop texture, though. They might be donk betting for a reason, but likely at the low stakes, donk bets are just screaming, raise me, and I'm going to fold.
1: Extra chips on the top of your stack will make you look like a better player. I
0: thought you were going to use that for X. We just talked about (laughs) equity. We just talked about (laughs) equity.
1: (laughs) All right, we're going to go lightning round. So now we have to minimize the pauses between.
0: All right, fold when you think you're beat. Don't make the hero calls if you can't make a justifiable reason for calling.
1: Good players know when they should check. Oh my God, G was hard. All right, you win a point, H.
0: Happy players tend to appear looser than they really are. If you're gregarious and lively, people will think you play more pots than you really do and they might give you a wider range than you really have.
1: Inside straight draw is another term for gut check.
0: Jokers are not allowed in the deck. If you see a joker, you should call the floor.
1: Kings are the second best starting hand.
0: Ladies are not as hard to play as people think. I've had so many people complain about playing pocket queens. It's not that hard. It's almost as good as aces and kings. Even if an ace and king come on the flop, you still likely have range advantage, so you should probably continue betting. Don't get scared of queens.
1: Mixing up your pre-flop raise size will have your opponents confused as to when you have a good hand and when you have a bad hand.
0: Knits are easy to deny equity from. They only ever open raise with the top, what, 5% of holdings. If you see a nit entering the pot for an open raise, just fold. You'll deny them equity.
1: Over pairs are always super strong, but you should not get married to them. And you should be careful when the board gets super scared.
0: Can I use the same tip for pocket pairs?
1: Oh, so I've been trying to say mine really fast so that you don't have time to think. And you're just able to come up with them each time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but now you got Q. What are you going to do for Q?
1: Queens are a pocket pair that, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so, okay. You, you, man, you're, you're what are you, three points ahead right now?
0: <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. Cues at the cage are often long. What I will do is before I leave the casino, I will ask the table to color me up and then I can just walk out with the chips. That way I don't need to stand in queue waiting to cash out my chips.
1: Do I get credit for queue? Yeah, I think that's a steal. You get like an extra point because you, you came up with something before I could. So you still get R. Realizing equity is almost
0: as fun as denying equity. And if you're confused what that means, just rewind this podcast and listen to it.
1: Straight draws are difficult to play when there's a flush on the board. So you should be careful about raising too much.
0: 10 high flops might be a sign that you need to slow down. Typically, when a flop has 10, 9, 10, 8, 10, 7, something like that, that board might favor the caller more strongly than it favors you as a preflop aggressor. It might be a sign to slow down.
1: Under pairs are only good if you turn a set.
0: Did you already talk about varying your bet sizes? You did, didn't you?
1: I said um, mixing.
0: Oh, mixing. Wow. Mixing. I, oh, I was going to say very sizes. I'm going to come work. up with
1: a steal. I'm going to get a steal. Uh, OK. No. Nope. Man, this is hard.
0: I don't know what to do for V.
1: Well, I feel like it's, we can't just use any word because you could just say, very large bets are hard to play against.
0: Winning pots is fun. I encourage it.
1: XR is a pretty simple notation for check raise if you're gonna keep notes in your cell phone.
0: Why is a question you should always ask yourself when you make any decision. If you can't justify the reason why you're doing something, you might not wanna do it. That was kind of a cheat right there because I used the word Y, which you could text the letter Y if you're chatting with someone.
1: I was just letting you explain because I still can't think of anything for Z. For Z? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah I, I don't.
1: Zebra uh, is a player type for someone who is hyper aggressive, <laughs> but you can't figure out what they're doing. That's,
0: that's a perfect? lie. Is that really a word? No, I you just make that up. I made. It I was going to say
1: player type that I made up.
0: So I was going to say zero is the amount of money you can expect to win if you just bet 100 every street and you don't know why you're doing it and you run into someone at top of range and they just crush you.
1: How about zero is what you could expect your bankroll to be if you listened to my version of these tips?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thanks, Thanks, Jordan. I'm really glad you were able to make this on short notice. We had a really good Slack conversation and we turned it into what I think is a great podcast. So thanks for joining us. And until next week, see if you can find some spots to deny their equity, realize yours, make more money at the table, and have more fun doing it.
1: This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review
0: on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours.